In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live pole that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. So this passage, it's a little bit terrifying, really. And it isn't going to make a whole lot of sense at first, but I'll try to explain it, which isn't going to make it less scary, but it'll make more sense, hopefully. So the passage begins with the message of the death of King Isaiah. Uh, so the past couple weeks we've been talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, but this week we're moving to the southern kingdom, Judah, where Isaiah was the king for a five-decade-long reign, fairly prosperous, uh, but then he dies. And with his death comes questions about the stability of the kingdom and who the next king will be. Uh, I know it's not exactly the same, but having made it past this last election cycle, I think this is something we can all sort of identify with. Uh, in this time of uncertainty and transition, Isaiah has a vision of God sitting on a throne. I think this is pretty important, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, next to God in this vision are seraphs. Uh, this word is used a few other times in the Old Testament, and it's in these times it's to refer to serpents. Uh, but this is the only time in the whole Bible that these kind of winged, angelic, maybe, beasts appear. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a vision, and God was up on the throne, and they were flying creatures that maybe were flying snakes, I'd probably be freaked out a little bit. Um, I know it's a little late now, but uh, if it was still Halloween time, I think we could have done some cool decorating based on that. Um, anyways, these beings are chanting praises to the Lord. Instead of in English, where we emphasize things by you know, stacking on adverbs, um, in Hebrew, words are emphasized through repetition. So when the seraphs chant, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Um, they're both referring to God as the Lord of hosts, which is like a way to praise God as a warrior and a protector. But before they do that, they're emphasizing God's holiness. Now, when presented with this scene, God high and lofty on a throne, seraphs chaining praises, and now even quaking in smoke. Uh, and the word threshold, I feel like every time I preach, the word threshold is in the passage. It's weird. Um, even with all this, Isaiah begins to feel completely inadequate and undeserving of being in the Lord's presence. Now, it's easy to imagine a scene in which Isaiah comes before the throne and God confronts Isaiah about his sins. But that's not what happens here. Isaiah is terrified and feeling inadequate because at the time, it would have been expected that if you saw God, if you are in his presence physically, that you would die immediately. Isaiah is afraid because his life is flashing before his eyes. He doesn't think God will approve of that life. But Isaiah was not struck down by the fear of the Lord. 
Instead, something else happens. One of the seraphs flies towards Isaiah with a hot coal. Just when he thought the story couldn't get any weirder or more frightening, this happens. The seraph, holding the coal and a pair of tongs, touches it to Isaiah's mouth and tells him that his sins have been blotted out. That sounds like a really painful and intense experience, but maybe intense in a good way. Hot coals have some symbolic meaning. They're used as part of a ritual on Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement, when sacrifices are made to atone for the sins of the people. After Isaiah has his sins forgiven, God speaks for the first time in the vision, asking, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah gives a powerful response, Here I am, send me. Now that takes some guts. The Bible is filled with people who are hesitant to respond to God's call. Uh, Moses is a big one. We just talked about Jonah last week, kind of running away, not wanting to do what God tells him. Uh, but right away, Isaiah is like, here I am, send me. Isaiah went on to be one of the most significant prophets of the Old Testament, which makes the cold of the lips thing make a little more sense. Um, it's still weird, though. Uh, so Isaiah's message wasn't just important for the people he was prophesying to at the time. I think his vision here offers a lot of important lessons for us today. The first thing I notice in this passage is the way in which Isaiah's sins are blotted out. He comes before God and admits his sinfulness. And he doesn't do that because God pressed him on it. He doesn't, God doesn't start listing Isaiah's sins, asking him if he thought he was a good person or anything like that. Simply being in the presence of God's supreme holiness and wonder caused Isaiah to realize how imperfect his own life is. So he admits that he is sinful and he lives among sinful people. I think this picture should guide how we treat the sinfulness of the people in our own lives. While we can't inspire the same kind of awe and fear that God does in this vision, it doesn't mean we can't lead by example and be welcoming and understanding. It can be easy to blame and accuse when we see sin in the lives of our neighbors. I don't think God didn't say anything about Isaiah's sin because he was unaware of it, even though God is without sin, and certainly we are not. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not judge, so that you may not be judged. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, Let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own? If you go up to someone and just start calling them out on their sin right away, instead of building a relationship and earning their trust, it isn't going to allow them to recognize their own sins and their own need for forgiveness. It's just going to make them angry. I don't think a majority of people in the church are like this, but the few who are like this are very noticeable. It's caused a lot of people outside the church to see it as a judgmental place. But like God welcomed Isaiah here, if we can welcome our neighbors, whether inside or outside of the church, and show them, through our example, a life that, although it's not perfect, is full of love and forgiveness, and just a little bit different than the way everyone else operates, then they may come to realize their sinfulness on their own. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that forgiveness is easy. After Isaiah admits his guilt, the seraph presses the hot coal to his lips and tells him his guilt has departed and his sin has blotted out. This must have been quite painful and difficult for Isaiah. But God took the action to forgive his sin. Isaiah couldn't do it on his own. And I think this is true for us in the big picture and in our individual lives. In sending Jesus to die for the salvation of each and every one of us, God has already taken the biggest step in forgiving our sins. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, 
But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But just like Isaiah must have thought the coal was painful, admitting our own shortcomings and allowing space in our lives for God to work through us isn't easy. Realizing that we can't do it all on our own, that's painful. But just like it is for Isaiah in this story, enduring that pain is worth it. The way in which Isaiah is called to do God's work and how that relates to his being forgiven is also something important to notice. God doesn't ask Isaiah to be a prophet and then forgive his sins. He blots out Isaiah's sin first and then asks, whom shall I send? Isaiah began this encounter with God feeling insignificant, like there was no way he even deserved to be in the presence of the Lord and survive. But in forgiving Isaiah, God let him know that his sins, his sins have already been dealt with, and that perfection isn't required, that he has been freed to fully participate in the kingdom of God. And this is certainly good news for all of us. But just like earlier, this doesn't mean that things will always be easy. That's why Isaiah's response is so powerful. <clears throat> Isaiah understood what to do with his newfound freedom and responded to God's call without hesitation by saying, here I am, send me. Even though we have not been freed from sin on the condition that we will be perfect followers of God, that doesn't mean it's a good thing for us to take this freedom and go home and sit on the couch and not do anything about it. Even though sometimes that can seem like our default setting. I know there was a part of me that just wanted to lie in bed and not write this and not come here today. Um, but I'm here. We've been given this freedom to share it with others, to spread God's love and mercy in what we say and in what we do. And I think that brings me to the last thing I wanted to talk about this morning. Um, I mentioned earlier that the context of this story is in some ways similar to where we're at right now as a country. Uh, this vision takes place in a time of transition for the southern kingdom. The long-reigning king has died. People are unsure what happens next. Uh, the southern kingdom also had to worry about the encroaching Assyrian Empire, a dominant military power that would soon take over the northern kingdom. Amid all this uncertainty and worry, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting high and lofty on a throne, higher than any earthly people, higher than any earthly leader. And when the seraphs chant praises to the Lord, they don't put the emphasis on his might. They do mention it, but it's not their main point. They don't praise God for being able to strike down the enemies of his people. They don't praise God for being able to build the most powerful armies on earth. They praise God for his holiness and seeing that the whole earth is full of his glory. Our struggles as a country are a little different because the southern kingdom is pretty small and we're sort of a global superpower. But at the same time, we are struggling through a time of transition of leadership, and this struggle is an internal one. I don't know about you, but when I look outside on social media, when I look at my friends and my family, I see a country that is fractured, full of people unable to understand each other. And this isn't new, this didn't happen this week or this year or even in the past decade. Uh, but it's only been getting worse. Whether or not you're happy about the results of this election or the last one or whatever you think of any leader that this or any country has had, um, it's easy to rely on might when we react to this. Um, it's easy to, where was I at? It's easy to yell louder than the other side try to convince them why you're right, why they're wrong, uh, and even resort to violence, both random and institutional. But I would urge us as Christians to instead, like the seraphs, praise God for his holiness, 
God didn't free us from sin so that we could yell at each other and not take anyone seriously who doesn't share our opinions. Jesus didn't die so that we could point out the speck in our neighbor's eye and ignore the log in our own. God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, all of us. No earthly leader, no congressperson, no president can offer that, no matter how much you like or dislike them. So as we all go back out into this fractured world, I'd ask that we show everyone why God freed us from sin, that we should be a beacon of God's grace and love and mercy. And as difficult as it may be, when God calls, whom shall I send? Reply, here I am, send me. Amen.